I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It's time for Ask Me Anything, the chat GPT edition. can have what seems alarmingly close to a human conversation with it. So I was a little taken aback. These systems don't have a way to distinguish true things from false things. That's a problem. There's not just a loss of jobs, but possibly increasing inequality because some folks are going to benefit from this technology. They'll become more productive and others are going to be displaced. You've probably heard the name ChatGPT at this point. It's a chatbot powered by artificial intelligence that can answer questions or write essays just by responding to a short text prompt, and that is just the beginning. AI is being used to clone celebrities' voices and even to make music just this week. A song using AI-generated voices of the artist Drake and The Weeknd racked up hundreds of thousands of listens before being pulled off the streaming services. And the technology has broader implications as well. For example, it could be used to imitate a politician or a news reporter, like me, for instance. What you're about to hear is not actually my voice. Hi, this is an AI-generated version of Susan Ormiston's voice. I've never read this copy. Instead, a producer fed a small sample of my voice to an AI-based app which generated this clip. All it takes is an internet connection, a few minutes of audio, and anyone can make a fake version of my voice. Hi, it's me again, the real Susan Ormiston, not the fake one you just heard. You can make your own decisions about whether that sounded like me or not. You can imagine the potential here, possibly, but also the potential risks. Just this week, a group of Canadian AI experts wrote an open letter to the federal government calling for legal safeguards when it comes to the use of AI. And legislation has been tabled in Parliament aimed at putting safeguards around how companies use this evolving, emerging technology. Here to walk us through the potential and the perils of AI and chat GPT, we've reached David Gerhard. He's the head of the computer science department at the University of Manitoba. David's here to answer your calls and questions. You can ask him anything. He's a human, not a bot. Call us at 1-888-416-8333. You can also text us at 226-758-8924. That's 226-758-8924. David, thank you very much for joining us. Very happy to be here, Susan. And hi there. Uh, this subject is so fascinating. And, you know, how would you say, how significant is the evolution of this chat GPT over the last three months? I think we're into version four now. Yeah, chat GPT four is the most recently publicly available version from a company called OpenAI. Uh, and the release of ChatGPT4 is uh, relatively recent. So not too long ago, they were updating from ChatGPT 3.5. And that was the version that caused 
um, Google to decide that it was really important that they get a language model out very quickly. Um, Microsoft is now integrating ChatGPT into the Bing search engine. And so a lot of companies are moving very quickly to recognize the potential for these language models. Um, and it really came about because we were able to see uh, this conversational aspect of uh, ChatGPT. You could ask it a question, it would give you some kind of an answer, and then you could have a conversation with it. And it seemed to know an awful lot about a lot of different language domains, a lot of different subject areas. And it was uh, it was difficult to ask it a question that it couldn't at least try to answer. Now, um, for those of us who uh, need to understand more how this works, uh, when it answers a question, a text question, what is it doing? Like, how is it coming up with the answer? So that's probably one of the biggest problems of this whole research area, uh, is that it's difficult to explain what it's doing. Uh, fundamentally, uh, it has first trained uh, a deep neural network on a very large collection of data, sort of all of the internet or most of the internet, um, and then it uses the words you type in to formulate a prompt. Uh, it then predicts one word at a time what the next word should be. And that seems like it's pretty straightforward. It seems like it's the kind of thing that your phone does when you're typing a message. It'll give you a prediction of what the next word should be. But because it's got this enormous corpus of data and it has encoded that corpus into this incredibly large and complicated neural network, the prediction for what word should be next seems to emulate um, a person having a conversation, right? And in some ways, you and I do the same thing, right? My brain is making some decisions about what word I should say next. And mostly it makes sense, but sometimes it doesn't. Uh, and these language models are doing the same thing. It has this large, really complicated, integrated collection of knowledge. Um, but that knowledge is encoded only in the connections between these artificial neurons. And so it's very difficult to then ask what is making it make these decisions? What is making it formulate these ideas. Um, and, and there's a lot of people who are researching right now on how to actually explain the results that an AI model will come up with. So David, I like this idea just very briefly here, just adding on that, of it's scraping the internet looking for the answer. Is that fair? Yes and no. I mean, the people who are who are programming these language models are being very careful about what sources that they collect, but they are collecting an enormous amount of data. So millions and millions of websites, all of the sort of most uh, the websites you would expect. So all of Wikipedia, all of Reddit, all of this, all of that. Um, and all of the text that has ever been put into any of these websites has been collected Jeez. and fed into this language model and then used to build sort of a repository of all human knowledge. <laughs> Just that. Just Gosh. that. As simple as that. <laughs> wow. All right. I'm here with computer science professor David Gerhardt talking about chat GPT. And in a few minutes, we're going to go to some of your calls. It's Ask Me Anything, all about chat GPT. Give us a call at 1-888-416-8333. Uh, David, I logged into chat GPT on the computer uh, this week, tested out a simple question, who is Susan Ormiston, just out of interest. And it came back with some pretty accurate data, not a lot, but, you know, accurate, except for one thing, it elevated me. I won an award, a prestigious Canadian journalism award that I've never won. Well, so congratulations. how accurate is it uh, when it comes back with these responses and, and is sourcing what it says part of the problem? Yeah. So in, in the intro, uh, somebody mentioned that uh, it has difficulty telling truth from fiction. Um, and this is one of the big problems is that its information is based on all of the data that's on the internet, but it's also just trying to do a good job. It's trying to make the best sentence, uh, phrase, 
script, whatever it is that it's generating. And so it doesn't really have an idea of what's true. It just has an idea of what's in its corpus. And if it doesn't have anything, it'll make something up. Uh, the developers call this hallucinating. Uh, it's a weird sort of emergent behavior. Um, this is one of the other problems is that they don't really know how it works. And so these behaviors that it starts to show um, are sometimes unexpected. That and so it has an emergent behavior called hallucinating, which is where it will just say stuff that's not true. Um, I, I, I know people like that, David, and, and that sounds like a problem with this system. I mean, we we can't test if it's true or not. And and by all reports, it continues to tell you something even if it's not true. Well, and this is the real problem. See, to me, when a, when a being tells you confidently something that's wrong, I don't call that hallucinating. I'll call that lying. Uh, I, th I think that this is a real problem with this stuff because as we have a conversation with this, and it seems to, in some cases, tell us stuff that seems to be correct, um, all it knows is what it has learned on the internet. And the internet, I don't know if you've noticed, yeah. does have a lot of bad information on Just it. Just a little. <laughs> yeah. You know what? I'm going to go to our callers. They're stacking up here, David. Uh, Roman Frank, Port Alberni, BC. Hi, Roman. Hi, good afternoon. What's your question? I have a two-part question, and uh, I hope it'll be clear at the end of it. So the first part of it is uh, what sort of, uh, as, as it was uh, out, uh, laid out at the beginning, is what sort of safeguards are in place to help contain this, with the safety protocols of an artificial intelligence that is capable of learning? And the second part to that is what is the learning structure of chat GPT, uh, i.e., is it a crystalline and linear function of learning, or is it something that may become more fluid and therefore more unpredictable and possibly able to bypass such, uh, such uh, protocols as ant uh, you know, virus and antivirus sort of war has always gone on? Uh, David, over to you. Thankfully, I don't have to explain what crystalline is. So I'll start with the second question first. Uh, one of the big things about these current models is they have no agency. They can't do anything on their own. All they can do is respond to our questions. So that's already a large safeguard that's built around these things. But you can imagine a bot like this that does have agency, that can make decisions on its own. And, um, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, uh, there were bots that were making stock market decisions. Uh, and these bots trading back and forth with other bots was one of the big reasons that we had some of these problems in the stock market. So bots with agency is definitely a problem. Um, AI researchers, when they talk about the safeguards around AI, they use the word alignment. Uh, this is about like, is this machine doing things that are aligned with the interests of humanity as a whole? Um, and a lot of people are really worried about what will happen when these things start to take on uh, their own agency, start to do their own things. So they will train these big models, and then as a human, they will come back and put on um, put on restrictions, put on chains. Say, don't talk about um, bad things. Don't be don't be a bad uh, robot. <laughs> be be a good robot. Don't be a bad robot. Like, don't be racist. Uh, don't be sexist. Don't talk about bad things. Except, of course, we know that the internet is full of all of that kind of stuff, and so it's trained on these things. And so a person has to come in and put these rules in place. And so the bot tries to answer, but then these rules that a person has put in say, well, don't do that. And so the bot just says, uh, I'm sorry, Dave, I'm afraid I can't do that. Hmm. And that's the result. Yeah, it, it does beg the question, though, uh, are the guardrails going to go up on all of this or is it going to run amok at some point? Well, and this is the choice that the developers of these systems are making. And right now, the developers of these systems are large companies who have a lot of 
um, reasons to behave in good ways, right? And so the Googles and the Microsofts of the world are saying, yes, we're being very careful to make sure that this AI is doing exactly what we tell it to and nothing more. Um, but fundamentally, this technology is not that complicated. I mean, it takes a great big computer farm and it takes a lot of data, but it's not difficult these days to get access to a great big computer farm and a lot of data. And so you can imagine a world where somebody will build an AI and train it up and not give it these guardrails. And then what does it do? David, I knew I knew this would touch a, um, a nerve with a lot of people and a lot of people are interested. They're calling in. I'm going to go to John Bain. Uh, oops, maybe I'm going to go to Ryan. Uh, sorry, John Bain. Uh, John, welcome to Cross Country Checkup. What's your question? Uh, well, your question for your for your expert there. Um, so I'm I'm a little familiar with the large language models and ChatGPT 3.5. And when when GPT 4 came out, people started saying that they saw glimmers of uh, artificial general intelligence. And my friends were asking me about, like, well, how much smarter is AGI versus, uh, like, a Stephen Hawking or, like, like our smartest human? And I was struggling to find an analogy to, to describe how much smarter AGI is from humans. Like, if, if, if Stephen Hawking is the best that we have, AGI, like, humans would look like crayfish. Like, it's, like, I'm trying to think of an analogy to best describe it. And I ask your expert, how does he describe how much smarter AGI is for humans. David? This is a this is a very difficult question because we don't really understand our own intelligence, let alone these artificial intelligences that we're generating. Right? We have our own experiences of what it means to be conscious, uh, what it means to be a, a being in the world and interact with other beings, but we don't really understand what problems are hard and what problems are easy. So. An analogy I use is, is chess. A long time ago, when computers were new, uh, we were trying to make computers that could solve, that could play chess. And this was a really difficult thing. And how do you make a computer that could solve, solve chess or could play chess? Um, and so you would build in all of these structures that would say, well, if this happens, then do this. And if this happens, then do this. And then we started to think about chess statistically. Uh, and we said, think about what you should do and then what it should do and then what you should do and what your opponent should do. And think about that 10, 15, 20 levels out. And when we combine that with large statistical models and neural networks, eventually we had a program that could beat the best of our uh, human players. And today, there's no human that can compete even remotely in, in chess. The, oh. the best chess players are uh, our computers. Oh. But we thought chess was a hard problem. Right. And at the same time, we thought that that speaking was going to be an easy problem. We were going to mm -hmm. have robots that could talk to us in, in natural language. And that took decades and decades and decades to get. And it's still not very good. So we're not good at knowing what difficult problems are. These machines are already fundamentally at a different level of intelligence on certain things. And on other things, they are, most children would outperform them. So it's really a very, very difficult conversation to have because we don't have good analogies for it. It's true. All right. Thanks for getting into that one. That's tricky. Uh, Spencer Cook called in from Halifax and asked us, <laughs> how easy would it be for AI to take over <clears throat> as a radio announcer on local radio, David? Uh, it already does that. Great. Uh, there's a feature in Spotify called Your DJ um, that, and it's it's frankly better than most radio hosts because it is personal. It'll say, you know, here's some music that you listened to in 2017, and then it'll say, oh, and that artist was connected to that studio, and isn't that interesting? And it'll make these super personal, super relevant connections that a DJ trying to um, satisfy millions of people just couldn't do. 
And so this is a place where uh, there's going to be an awful lot of change very quickly in um, applications of uh, sort of knowledge work that that applies to specific people um, that previously had applied to very large collections of people. I mean, true enough. But I also uh, heard recently about a, a company that was perhaps marketing, maybe in early stages, this idea of having, for example, an overnight radio news announcer uh, who was actually safely in bed, but that news announcer's voice was replicated and programmed to pick it, pick up what had happened overnight. So, you know, the Raptors won or the Leafs lost, even though that announcer was not in the booth. Uh, they were at home. Well, and, and like we heard in your in your introduction, it, it is trivially easy today to take a collection of, of somebody speaking, my voice, and to run it through a model and then have a model that can replicate my voice saying whatever text you want. That's a technology that exists now, and we're going to have to learn what that means. Uh, the, the the Spotify AI I was talking about, that's the, the voice is a person in Spotify, and it talks to you as if it's your friend. Wow. All right. Ryan Baxter in London, Ontario. Uh, welcome to Cross Country Checkup. What's your question? Hi, thank you. Uh, my question for your expert is, well, what are the potential applications for this kind of technology to help solve economic or social problems, especially in developing countries that maybe don't have such a robust economy or social system like we have here? So, of course, you can have a conversation with it, but what are some further applications that could really help solve some real-world problems for people. Uh, yeah, and, and this is this is the most important thing to think about because we we talk about how how maybe frightening this might be that have these models that are that seem to be intelligent that seem to compete with us on levels of intelligence, but that should mean they can help us in some ways, right? And so what it takes is um, is somebody using the system to frame a problem and have a conversation with the model in such a way that you can get a good answer from it. Um, a lot of the examples that I have are people solving their own individual problems. Um, but you can imagine asking an AI system to uh, construct a new form of government that that, uh, that takes into account these particular problems and these particular solutions or design a policy document that would try to solve these particular problems. The challenge there is whether the source of that information is on the Internet now. Right. It knows everything on the Internet and it can make decisions based on that. Uh, but if the thing you're trying to solve wasn't written about on the Internet or is a little bit unusual, um, then it might be more difficult to apply. So if you wanted to um, ask it to help negotiate a strike, for example, uh, that's a thing that people have tried to get it to do. Hmm. Right. Um, somebody used it to negotiate a, a, a lower rent to their landlord and it worked. Uh, people have used it to um uh, to design meal plans for particular dietary requirements and also make the shopping list and also decide exactly how to make it. So there's a lot of things that you can ask it to do. The question is, how are you going to prompt it to do the thing you want it to do? The question is, is the federal government using it right now to find a solution to the federal workers' strike? <laughs> Come on, I tell us the good answer. I don't know the answer that. to that question. <laughs> oh, well. Go and do your homework. Thank you. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. 
All right. Theo Kingdom from Toronto, Ontario. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup and AMA. What's your question? Thanks for having me. Um, my question is about um, how how much we can trust uh, like these technologies. Um, so this is kind of off the back of Elon Musk claiming that his processor in his cars was less likely to fail than a person is to lose consciousness. And he kind of made that the bar as like this car is trustworthy. And I was wondering if you think that in the future we'll be able to look to the decisions of like these AI models as truth or higher than experts that we have. Um, for example, in the medical field, reading a an X-ray to determine if someone has uh, like a mass in their lungs, is there a point where the AI's decision would be like the final decision for care? Yeah, that's a great question, Theo. Essentially, are the experts uh, on AI better than the human ones, David? I, I suspect it'll be a long time before we trust AI to make the kind of decisions that the, the kind of life and death decisions that that um, that that we're talking about here. Uh, we don't even necessarily trust individuals to do that. Often, for really really important decisions, we'll have three or four people talk about these to each other and and um, and suggest possibilities, right? Sometimes a few doctors will get together and discuss a case um, and and sort of throw ideas back and forth before you make a final decision. We have we ask, you know, entire populations of people to vote on a decision if it's really, really important. And so expecting a single AI to make those decisions for us, even if somebody suggested that, I suspect that the people would not be excited about that idea. Uh, and as we were talking about earlier, the current generation of chatbots just don't have any sense of truth. They will produce information that is that that is a conglomeration of what they find on the internet, but they will be as confident in their wrong answers as they are in their right answers. But David, can you think of examples, maybe in the medicine field, for example, where uh, AI will help parse out what uh, doctors don't have to do and give that over to nurse practitioners who may use AI to lessen the load on their day, for example? Is that one of the positive things that could that we could see? Oh, absolutely. And I think this is going to be one of the big benefits once these models are are mature and and clear that they can be trusted um, in cases that they can. There are in, in any sort of knowledge field, there are easy questions and hard questions. And there are answers that are yes, answers that are no, and answers that are I need a bit more information. Right. And so if the AI can do sort of the bulk of the heavy lifting and say, look at look at this symptom model. Here's this collection of information. Oh, yeah, that's definitely this thing or that's definitely that thing. Here's the treatment. Here's the diagnosis done. Or here's a situation where it doesn't really fit any of our models. And maybe we need a bit more information. And I, as an AI, need to pass it on to a human to actually do the more difficult, creative, uh, knowledge-based work that, that, the, that the doctors have the training to be able to look at in different ways. Um, the same uh, argument has, be, has been used with uh, with law, right? That that uh, you know a big part of a paralegal's job is to dig through discovery boxes and boxes of paperwork. Well, that is a thing that an AI could do a lot easier and a lot quicker, hmm. and collect sort of the the key elements of what's being uh, presented, and then send that to a human, which would then look at it and say, okay, now this is the kind of thing I want to do. Hmm. Fascinating. Uh, we have a caller from Kelowna, B.C., uh, Lana McCartney. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup. Lana, what is your question? Hey, thanks very much. Um, I've been listening to uh, quite a bit of this conversation around AI, and I'm, I'm glad that we're having a lot of conversations about it. 
We had a particular situation with AI in our own home recently. Uh, my husband is currently doing his doctorate in strategic man- management at a university. And these universities and colleges are using software and technology to uh, flag papers for plagiarism, which they've been doing for years and years. But now they've added AI to it. And my husband was recently accused of using AI for part of a recent paper that he wrote when he, in fact, did not. So. It was an interesting thing where he had to defend himself and kind of show all of his uh, recent Internet history because, of course, ChatGBT and these AI can write papers. Yeah. How are we going to go forward, uh, you know, because we're going to have a lot of people accused of, uh, of not having original work. So a robot has, has uh, accused my husband of writing like a robot. How, how are we going to combat that in the future? Because it's already hurting people now. Wow, David, great question. And you're in the academic world, um, plagiarism. How do you protect that? What's going on? So so first I want to say how interesting how fast this moves, because yeah. first it was chat GPT, and then it was chat GPT can write my papers for me. And then it's chat GPT can detect when chat GPT writes my papers for me. And then it just it's very, very quick and difficult to to keep up with. Um, we've had these conversations in in the academy uh, for for a long time, of course, about how to establish when a person has done the work that they're meant to be have done um, and and when they haven't. And and I mean, the key with plagiarism is you are submitting work, uh, you're claiming it as your own when it isn't. And and the problem is that any work that anybody presents is really a proxy for the work that we're actually talking about, which is the development of the ideas in their own brain. So ideally, I wouldn't have you know papers anymore. I would sit down with each of my students and I would say, "Tell me what you learned and let's have a conversation." Uh, that's that's sort of what you do in a in a PhD thesis defense, right? You write the document, but then the real work is actually having the conversation with the other experts around the room to say, "Well, have you thought about this?" "Oh yeah, I have," and here's why. Right. That's the that's the sort of uh, measure of, of whether or not the work is is of high enough quality to uh, establish that credential. Um, of course, we can't do that when we have thousands and thousands of students. And so we have these exams. And this is going to be an ongoing question is how do we tell when a student has used um, a, a piece of technology to rep to to sort of shortcut the, the knowledge synthesis that they're meant to be doing? Um, and how do we build a tool that can detect that, but how do we inform and ensure that that tool is actually correct? Because as we've been saying over and over again, these things can be confidently wrong. And so if you build and and poorly train, if you if you build an AI tool and you poorly train it and then say, I'm going to use that tool to make me a decision, um, then that's an, an inappropriate use of the tool itself, right? The tool is just a tool. An AI chatbot is just an AI chatbot. It's how we interpret the results that really matter. Yeah, but David, you know, Lana, I'm interested in, in it must have been really uh, vexing for you and your husband to be of, accused of, of doing I mean, this. I mean, he could have an, an asterisk beside his entire academic life as a cheater. You know, he was, uh, yeah, absolutely. Our house was just uh, fraught with uh, anxiety for about two weeks while it was sorted out. And, uh, you know, in the meantime, he's submitting more papers um, and, you know, getting, you know, 97 to 100 percent on them all, kind of going, why, why would I use this technology? We, and the problem is, is we don't really understand it. We don't know how it works. We've never used it. And here he's being accused of using wow. this technology. So, um, so with that being said, um, you know, he had to defend his original work by showing his entire Internet history and then, you know, uh, and have conversations with um, with the uh, professor and the grievance department at the university. It did wind up be, being overturned, um, but... Uh, 
but now he he's worried about all future papers because this is the way that he writes. I guess he writes like a robot. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that's a really interesting scenario there. It almost feels like you're on the leading edge of this. Uh, fascinating. Thank you so much for calling in. I want to turn to Pam Smith from Edmonton, Alberta. Welcome to Cross Country Checkup and AMA. Pam, what's your question? Hi there, and thank you. Um, my question is, why have these AI systems been designed to scrape the entire Internet? I mean, why can't they just... Um, you know, peruse several hundred thousand websites that have been vetted as, I don't know, say 95% factual. Like, why are we, you know, why are we, why are we sludging, going through all the sludge as well? David? Yeah, this is, this is part of the challenge of any of these models is the, the result of the training data is based on, or the result of the model is based on the result of the training data. And so in the, we, we call this garbage in, garbage out. If you train it with bad data, you're going to get a bad result. Um, the intent with this stuff, with these chat bots, is to train it on as wide a collection of information as possible so that it can answer uh, as many different kinds of uh, queries as possible, can have a conversation. Um, and so it's trained on conversations, right? It's trained on these forums where people talk back and forth to each other. Um, to to go through one of these forums and identify when a conversation is good and when a conversation is bad would be would would be a monumental task, an almost impossible task. Uh, and so the the developers are trying to be a little bit careful about which collections of information they're using, but the idea is more is better. And so deeper um, deeper models can be trained with more data. Um, but one of the interesting things that people are starting to talk about is using big models like this trained on, your data for yourself. So a personalized, for your own use only, um, large language model where it would be trained, and this is Google has suggested this, right? It would be trained on all of your emails and all of your search history. And if that doesn't terrify you, I don't know what does because <laughs> there's an awful lot of problematic ideas there. I mean, it, it, at first it sounds exciting because, oh yeah, it'll know everything about the way I write and it can write something so beautiful and perfect uh, that I wouldn't have to make any edits. But it also then is a a collection of everything that I've ever done online in some model that we've already established. We don't really understand how it works or how it makes decisions. Right. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, conversations around this kind of model as well. Absolutely. And you talked about a DJ and the, uh, the positive program of a AI DJ who can bring in all the music knowledge that we all wish we had and didn't. I, I want to uh, give you an example as well of AI being used to create music. I mentioned Drake in the weekend collaboration, which was fake and eventually removed from streaming services very recently. I want to play you a piece of another song. This is a fake cover of a Drake song performed by an AI-generated Ariana Grande. So even if you weren't a huge fan of hers, you might be confused, uh, even if you were rather a huge fan of her, you might be confused that that was her real voice. I mean, what kind of implications are there of this voice cloning, yours, mine, and celebrities? Well, it's just like uh, the deep fakes from uh, video systems from a few years ago is it will be very difficult to take a piece of media at its face value. Uh, because we will always be questioning, like, is this me talking or is this somebody making something else to pretend that I talked? 
people will need to keep much better records, like the previous caller about the, the thesis and keeping records of all of their internet history, keep records of their own activities to prove that this is the thing I said and that's not the thing I said. Um, it, it really depends on how people are going to start to use these, right? If you have somebody that wants to see, um, that, that doesn't like you and wants to see your internet reputation tarnished, they could make you say a bad thing and, and put it up online. And, and then what could you do except try to respond, right? Um, it will be uh, a very difficult, like the truth of, uh, of things will be a very difficult thing to continue to, to, uh, have a way to measure. Okay, turning to another caller, Rob Miller in Victoria, B.C. Hi, Rob. Hi. What's your question? Uh, my question would be for uh, Dave, your host, uh, or your guest today. Uh, and it's, Dave, how do we know that you're real and not an AI-generated bot? <laughs> well, you Dave, don't. are you real? I, I I certainly feel real, uh, and you feel real to yourself. I mean, this is the philosophical argument of solipsism, right? The only thing that I know that is real is me, right? I think, therefore, I am, and that's all I got. And so as far as I know, I'm living in a simulation, and none of this is real. And so the question is, is there any difference between that and me interacting with you and that and me interacting with a chat bot that seems to have a conversation? I suspect in... in in a, a short amount of time, maybe a few years, uh, it will be difficult to tell the difference between um, a, a chatbot having a conversation and a, a friend having an email conversation. Uh, my hope is that this will drive people into much more commonly interacting in person um, because that's, the, to me, a fundamentally better and more human way to interact. But I mean, if you're far away and the only way you can interact with somebody is over text, then yeah, you really don't know if that's a human or a chatbot. David, uh, you've been uh, really good at answering all these questions. We've got a, a couple of minutes only left. We have a social question from Mark Valoon in Montague, PEI. He texts, can chat AI interfere with military intelligence? We've certainly heard a lot about leaks lately. Is false information from Ukraine or Sudan reaching Ottawa or the White House? In incredibly difficult and challenging question to answer. Um, I'll, I'll come back to this idea that that the these language models do not have agency yet. They're not actively doing things yet, right? They are answering questions being asked. Uh, and most people who are using them um, should be verifying the information that they get from other sources. So I would be surprised if the military wasn't using a chatbot of some kind to, uh, to analyze information. Uh, but also then we'd be confirming that information with other sources so that they know that the information has uh, more authenticity than a chatbot who may hallucinate. And uh, just barreling on here, because we've had so much response, Brendan Rathbone from Calgary, Alberta, has a question for you, David. Hi, Brendan. Hey, how are you doing? Good, thank you. What's your question? Uh, I just, uh, I've just chat GPT for a few things now, like uh, automating some stuff and, uh, but I recently tried using it to emulate the back and forth of like a Reddit forum post, like different people in the post. And it was pretty scary how well it was doing it. I'm just curious what you guys think of how long we're going to be able to have even these forums that are not just entirely AI and, and what your thoughts are around that. David, just briefly, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm really scared of this because mm -hmm. it's easy to uh, simulate a conversation and therefore it's easy to use one of these uh, models to try to change people's minds in the course of a conversation. Um, so that I think is going to be a really big problem going forward. Well, you were quick. Well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I want to just last word to you. Uh, I'm interested in how fast you think this is happening. 
I mean, it just feels like it's galloping along and how much of an influence it's going to be shortly in our lives. Yeah, this is, I was listening to uh, the CEO of, of OpenAI talk about this very issue, uh, is that they have chosen to develop sort of in public, right? They would develop a model, they would train the model, and then they release it and see what happens to it. And it would break and bad things would happen. And then they would take that model down and make a new one. Uh, it really is difficult to uh, understand how how much we need to adapt to each of to the, the kind of abilities that these things can do. We need legislation to be put in place to decide how we're going to decide who benefits from these things, right? When these things start to make money, who makes that money? Are these things going to be allowed to advertise to us? Uh, if they can understand the the deep psychological um, you know, processes that can convince me to do a thing, is it going to be able to advertise to me? I think that the change is happening very quickly. Um, and this has been happening for, for decades. Each new technology informs the next new technology. And it is very, very difficult to keep up with how these changes are going. Um, and that makes it difficult to predict the future. That's uh, a great answer to end on. And I thank you very much, David Gerhard at the University of Manitoba, head of computer science. We'll be talking more to you and others about these AI technologies. Thank you so much, David. Thanks a lot, Susan. It was a lot of fun. It was indeed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.